We are going to continue our sermon series, uh, and it is bittersweet to announce that uh, next week is the last Sunday of the series, and so uh, it's been an incredible journey in this text. We've been able to hear some really amazing sermons from leaders in our church uh, during this series that really were a blessing just to hear God speak through them. It's been a rich time in Scripture. Um, and if you weren't here last week, before we read the text, I want to remind you that this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, um, what most scholars and commentators observe is that this is the application moment. That everything that Jesus has said up until this moment, right now what he's talking about is what it looks like for us to apply everything he's taught us. That's important for us to have in mind as we hear what he's saying because otherwise we might miss the weightiness, the significance of what he's saying and how he's saying it. And so, with that in mind, we're going to pick up where we left off, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23. Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we stand before your word and the weightiness of it. We pray you'd give us hearts to hear your voice, to hear you speak to us. Holy Spirit, would you come and glorify Jesus, reveal him to each and every one of us in a new and transformative way. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen and amen. You know, um, if you have children in your life, uh, this isn't going to come a shock to you. Uh, but if you have nephews, nieces, then you might know this. If you don't, I want to let you in on something that happens during this time of year. Uh, school begins. That's no mystery. You know it. Some of you have been taking the trains, and you miss the summer commutes when there weren't crazy kids on the trains um, or on the buses. So you know school is in full effect. What you may not know is that there is this other space, this other pocket of activity, and that's probably the biggest reason when you stare into a parent's eyes and you see deep sadness in their eyes. It's sports season, y'all. You don't understand? It starts now. And so there are all these leagues and essentially parents become like Uber drivers over the weekends and you're taking them to this game and that game and this game. Over the years, uh, my two oldest kids gravitated towards soccer and I loved it because it was a sport that I didn't grow up playing and so I loved, I was fascinated watching it. Um, and it was also a fascinating experience because I didn't grow up uh, being part of like uh, sports leagues or kind of formal leagues. We played in the street, that was it. Uh, we played in the park, there was no referee, you called your own fouls, you get it. And so, but these organized sports leagues has been fascinating because despite social pressure to get parents to calm down at sports leagues, they have not listened. 
these parents go nuts. They're screaming at their kids, they're intense, they're wild. And I've noticed that there's kids and there's a spectrum of why kids are there at these leagues. Some kids are like born athletes. There's this one kid, my, one of my son's soccer leagues, God made this kid's foot for soccer. This kid could kick the ball like I've never seen. Amazing. But that wasn't everybody on the team. Some kids were there because their parents just wanted them to socialize. And so like, I'm gonna force you to socialize or I don't want you to stay home and just be on a screen. I want you to be around people. Um, and then some just were there kicking and screaming and they didn't enjoy it and you could see it. The parents weren't fully enjoying it. It was just really fascinating to watch. There was one league where the, se the season ended and one team in this league came in eighth place, the last place, and it was time to get trophies. And there was no trophy for little Timmy. And little Timmy was having a hard time about it. And they're walking and he's upset. The parents are trying to get off the field before he makes a bigger scene. And I'm watching, I'm like, man, you got an uphill battle, little Timmy, in this life. Because we live in a world where not everybody gets a trophy, but we live in a world that says everybody should get a trophy. It's confusing because we don't want people to feel bad. We don't want people to feel like they're excluded or they didn't make the cut. But also all around us, there are people being excluded and making the cut and people that are clearly in and those that are out. And so for us in our day and age, it's jarring whenever we hear language that says some people are in, some people are out. Whenever it says there are standards that if you meet them, you are in this category. If you don't, then you are in that category. It's jarring for us. But in particular, it's jarring for us as people of faith because some of the things that we talked about last week where if you look at these next texts that we're going to get into, these next verses to the end of this series, essentially last week we talked about Jesus addressing the reality of false teachers. Next week, we're going to look at the reality of false hearing. And today, we're going to look at the reality of false confession. False confession. And what we see here, Jesus says something that's hard for us to process because in our particular Christian context, we've heard even preachers communicate this false idea of grace that says, Everybody's in, nobody's out. There's no standard, there's no right or wrong, there's no narrow road or wide road. There, there's, it's everybody's included. And so when we think that, feel that, been made to believe that, and then Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into my kingdom, all of a sudden Jesus becomes very offensive to us. Because he's, what is he saying? That doesn't fit what we believe to be right and normal and clear in our day and age and in our religious sense because of this false teaching that exists. Yet Jesus here says in very apocalyptic language, like end of the days, judgment seat of Christ language, he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, 
I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now I realize this is jarring for us, for all the reasons I just mentioned and perhaps others, but for the people at that time, it actually wouldn't have been that jarring. It would have been confrontational. It would have been convicting. It would have been difficult truth to process. But this wouldn't have been the first time they would have heard something said like this. Because actually, if you go back to the prophet Jeremiah, hundreds of years before this moment, he prophesies and says these words from God to the people of Israel. Jeremiah 29, verse 13, it says, the Lord says... These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules. They have been taught. See, when we hear Jesus say what he's saying in these verses, it's actually following in suit with things that God has said prior to this moment. And particularly, it has a lot of relevance when you think of one of the groups of people that Jesus is addressing that's factored into who he's speaking to, and that is the Pharisees and the religious leaders. If you remember, one of the things that Jesus says during the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples, to his followers, that's who he's addressing in all these verses. He's talking to people that are choosing to follow him, and he tells them, Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, then you won't enter into the kingdom. And so Jesus, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, has been getting at something consistently, keep knocking at the same door, trying to get the same message across. And that is that what he's after is not an obedience that looks like the obedience of the religious leaders of that time, which their obedience was strictly external. It was an outward conformity. It was a, an obedience of appearance. Yet inwardly, it was the furthest thing from their reality. The Sermon on the Mount has been addressing this in all these different ways because the religious leaders at that time, they knew what to say. They knew what to quote. They knew how to be perceived, yet God was always after their heart. I remember years ago, not at this church, um, but one of the journeys, one of the more painful, confusing, difficult journeys I ever had to uh, embark on was with a couple who had gone through some real bad trauma in their marriage. Um, it turned out that the husband had actually an emotional affair for three years. So there was three years of text messages and like Facebook messenger things and all these communications that when it all came to the forefront, it was devastating. Could you imagine for years trusting someone, believing that you're at the same place with someone and then discovering that all along their heart has been elsewhere. It's devastating. I remember it was, there, there's moments, just to let you know, if you ever see me um, and I look like I'm talking under my breath, I'm praying. Um, because often in pastoring, there's these moments where it's like, 
Lord, this is above my ability to figure this out. <laughs> Jesus, please come and help, meet, speak. Um, I'm saying all of that very quickly under my breath. Um, please, Lord, don't let me mess this person's life up. That, that literally, that very sophisticated pastoral prayer. I've been praying that for, for a long time. Please don't let me mess this person's life up. And by his grace, he's been answering that prayer. Um, it was one of those moments like, what do I do? What was really awkward, intense, difficult was in an attempt to repair, in an attempt to move forward, the husband in that situation was like, I technically didn't do anything wrong. And there I am in the room. I'm like, what do I do now? Because the reality is, though he didn't cross any physical lines, any physical boundaries, he totally transgressed. He totally crossed lines. There was a true emotional affair. In many respects, what Jesus is addressing, what Jeremiah addressed, is the fact that often, as the people of God, we may profess loyalty and devotion to God, yet inwardly we have all sorts of entanglements affairs. We're duplicitous. Our devotions are scattered. Jesus is addressing the tendency of us to amass and declare religiously empty words. To say things that should mean something because they're utterly serious what we're saying, yet in our lived reality, they don't mean in our lives what they should mean. See, the crowd that Jesus was speaking to, this was the air that they were breathing. They were living on, in a context where this was religion of their day, that they lived in a world where the leaders of their religion, I tell you, it's fascinating. I've been reading church history and in particular around this time of Palestine, it's fascinating to realize that some of these high priests paid for their position. They literally bought their role as high priests. And so the, these folks weren't in it because of devotion to God. A lot of them were in it because they wanted power. They wanted their family line to have power. And so the people that Jesus is addressing, the air they breathed at that time was an air of outward conformity, yet inward callousness. Inward coldness and resistance. And Jesus is saying, to call me Lord, to rightly identify me as king, to be theologically correct and biblically sound in addressing me as Lord is not enough. If inwardly and your lived reality does not match what you've just said. Jesus is addressing the delusion that we think we could have belief without obedience, that we could have confession without surrender, that outward conformity without inner transformation is okay. Jesus is saying our words about him, though theologically and biblically correct, will ring hollow if it's not accompanied by a life that conforms to his will.
you know, throughout the years, um, I've been asked at various moments, like, hey, how come you don't do, like, altar calls? And uh, you're saying, what's an altar call, Chris? Some of you are like, I've, I've never heard of such a thing. Please unpack this. What is a, a call? An altar? What is this? And so let me explain. It's this idea. That, and it's this thing that's existed in many churches for a long time. In fact, if you've ever seen a Billy Graham crusade, you can go tonight, put on YouTube, Billy Graham crusade, and at the very end of his crusade, he makes an invitation for people to come forward. And essentially the idea is come forward to an altar. An altar biblically was a place where a sacrifice dies. And so it's really rich biblical imagery and language of come and lay your life down. But when you come, essentially people are led into a confessional prayer. And the prayer is, is a reflection of Romans 10. If you've never read Romans 10, go watch some Billy Graham tonight and open your Bible to Romans 10. And you'll, you'll have an epiphany because what Romans 10 tells us is that we believe in our hearts. It says, if you confess Jesus as Lord and you believe in your heart, you shall be saved. It says, because with the heart you believe unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And so there was something that was derived called the sinner's prayer. Have you ever heard of the sinner's prayer? If you've never heard of it, third thing I want you to research. I'm, you'll have no reason to watch Netflix this week. It was like, Chris got me busy, man. He got me reading uh, Sinner's Prayers and Bill Graham Crusades and Romans 10. Um, it's basically a reflection of leading someone into a prayer, and in that prayer, they are confessing Jesus as Lord. They are acknowledging their sins. They are confessing that he died in their place, that he died and rose again, and they're, and they're giving them their life to Jesus. And can I tell you, that's how I came to Christ. Someone led me in that prayer. That was my connection point, my starting point. But here's why, and, we, and if you've been here for any period of time, at various moments, we invite people to go and receive prayer. If they want to know and follow Jesus, we direct them, go and receive prayer from the prayer team. They'll guide you in what it looks like to follow Jesus, give you next steps. If you've been here any amount of time, you've seen that we've baptized a number of people throughout the years. So people that are actually confessing faith in Jesus and publicly declaring and saying, I believe that he saves me. I still believe in repentance and confession and in, and in prayer, but if you ask me if I had to choose between a sinner's prayer and someone baptizing, being baptized, I would choose baptism. Here's why. Because over the years I've seen words are cheap. And the worst thing to do is to give someone the impression that because they said these prayers, these, these magical words, that's it. And they walk away with a false security that because they said that prayer, it doesn't matter how they live from there on out. Whereas in baptism, you're going to go into those waters if you really mean it and understand it and intend to follow through with it. Jesus is warning us, paying, putting attention toward this reality that Sometimes we could say words that should mean more to us, but they don't mean what they should mean 
and they become empty. And we could go around thinking because we said the right thing, believe the right thing, can quote the right verse, can even teach others to believe the right things about Jesus, that that's enough. But again, this is not something that not only was Jesus saying new, Jeremiah was saying it, and then even after Jesus says it, we see James in the, the epistle of James, he reflects on this and keeps this idea going. James chapter 2, verse 14 to 19, he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. It, those words are so sobering, and what Jesus is saying is so sobering because it highlights that you can actually believe something that's theologically correct and true, and you render that belief meaningless if it doesn't show up in your life, if it doesn't have obedience to follow. See, faith was never intended to just be words, confessions, or doctrinal statements. Because as James points out, correct belief in God divorced from obedience is devilish. That's a scary thing to realize that we are in the company of demons when we believe but don't obey. But it gets... This forest gets thicker because Jesus adds another layer. Verse 22, he says, many will say to me on that day. Now imagine the scene he's building for us, the judgment seat of Christ, where scripture says one day we'll all stand before Christ and give an account for our lives. And on that day, those who said, Lord, Lord, but didn't do the will of the Father, when he doesn't let them into the kingdom, they will make their argument. They'll make their case. And as they make their case, look at the evidence that they offer that says, we should be let in. We should be in your kingdom. We need a trophy. Acknowledge us. I said, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? This is what they're offering to Jesus as evidence of why they should be in the kingdom. And to those people, with all that goodness happening in their life, prophecies and miracles and setting people free, Jesus says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me. You evildoers. This is heavy. Because what Jesus is pointing out for us, which I think 
we need this reminder a lot. I know I need it. That spiritual gifts are no substitute for the lordship of Jesus. Spiritual gifts are not an evidence of a life surrendered to Jesus. There are some folks that I've met over the years, and it makes it still makes me scratch my head. It's like so gifted and yet so incongruous in their lives. And, and hear me, I'm not talking about struggling. I'm not talking about like weakness and, and, and growing pains, because if you're hearing this, you're hearing this like rare, very clear standard. Jesus says, it's not enough to have right belief in me and right confession, but you have to live in conformity to my lordship. And you're hearing that people who don't do that will be excluded. And then you're hearing that some of those people that don't live consistently have these miraculous things at work in their life. And so the question for me is like, what room is there in what Jesus is saying for people who have struggles, for people who are growing, who people who are trying to pick themselves up, who mess up, who have flaws, who have weaknesses. This, it sounds very exacting. And like, who can make this cut? I know no one in this room has struggles. I know you guys really are all wonderfully put together. You haven't had a bad day in like seven years. I get it. But for the rest of us, what do you do with struggles? What do you do when, at times where you say the right thing, but you live in contrary to it? Is Jesus saying that if you've had moments of weakness and struggle, that you won't enter into his kingdom? Is that what he's saying? When we look at all of what he's saying, we realize that he's really focusing on one specific kind of attitude, posture, toward him. See, he's addressing the lie that external religious observance is enough to ignore inward rebellion. And he says to people that live this way, says that he will say, I never knew you. Now, if you know, this is clearly a play on words because the omniscient God knows all of us. And so there's no one that he doesn't know. Do you know that God fully knows you? For some of you, that's comforting and slightly terrifying. It's terrifying for me. Wait, you fully know me? Everything? Even that thing? Yes, even that thing fully knows you. Yet Jesus is saying to people that confess one thing and live contrary to it, his rebuke, his correction will be, I never knew you. What he's getting at is in the ancient world, people were obsessed with people's origins. When you met someone, they wanted to know where are you from? Where's your family from? 
Where, where, where do they descend from? Where, where have you grown up? They're trying to place you within a story. They're trying to give some context. They're trying to assess who you are. And so Jesus is saying, for people that live this way, that confess one thing and inwardly live another way, he's essentially saying, you live as if we have no relationship at all. That there are areas of your life that are completely devoid of my relationship with you. And you're choosing that. You are making that choice to live in areas of your life completely devoid of relationship with me. He invites us to do his will from our hearts. And yet there's areas of our life where Jesus is addressing where often we will adamantly resist his will and say, I know this is what you want me to do, but I'm going to still do this. That's different from struggling. Willful sin, willful disobedience is not struggling. That's not I'm growing in grace. Uh, you know, I'm maturing. That's willful sin. When we willfully know the right thing to do and choose and keep choosing, it keeps showing up in our life, that is a choice that we're making. If you want to get more specific who Jesus is addressing, he's not addressing people that are struggling. And so if you're here and you're struggling and you're thinking, I'm never going to be accepted to the kingdom of God until I get everything right, that's not, he's not talking to you. But he is talking, he says, he will call them evildoers. That is a very loaded word. But it's loaded to imply and to communicate that Jesus is speaking to people who are bent on evil. Who know the right thing, confess the right thing, and yet choose to do the wrong thing. Consistently. Willful sin is a choice to resist the lordship of Jesus. Anytime you and I willfully sin, we need to be really clear that what it boils down to is that we are choosing to be Lord over our lives and resisting him being Lord over our lives in that area. Could there be other circumstances? Absolutely. Could, could it be that that week you didn't sleep well, you didn't have coffee that morning, you know, the seven train was exceptionally bad? It, it, are there other things that are, absolutely, but at the end of the day, if we really get down to it, willful sin is choosing to resist the lordship of Jesus. And Jesus is letting us know in these words that he doesn't give a pass to willful sin. That he calls it for what it is. He confronts it. Imagine what it must have felt like for people to hear these words of Jesus, especially if they were steeped in religion and they thought outward conformity and observance was enough for them to hear, wait a second, that's not gonna save me. That's not enough. This Jesus is reminding us of something God's been saying all along, that he doesn't want just outward conformity. He wants our hearts. He wants inner surrender. 
But imagine what it must have felt like for those who weren't religious, for those who felt like a mess, who didn't conform to the standards that they were told they had to conform to in order to be found loving to God. It must have been such a relief to them to know, wait a second, the thing I'm not doing already can't save me? That's fantastic. Tell me what I need to do to get saved. As I was preparing and sitting with this text, it was incredibly convicting. Because I saw sin from this text in a different frame, in a different light that if I've seen it like this before, I definitely forgot because it felt brand new to me. If we see what Jesus is saying, he's saying that sin, willful sin, willful disobedience, someone saying the right thing but living the wrong way, consciously choosing that. His rebuke to that person was, he didn't say, depart from me because you didn't get it right. He didn't say, depart from me and you should feel really awful what you did because that was terrible. He actually says, depart from me. I never knew you. He frames disobedience within the context of relationship with him. And how that hit me so profoundly is because what it ultimately says, our sins, what they ultimately reveal is what we don't yet fully know and believe about God. Underneath the sin, underneath whatever it is, the lying, the, the addictions, the, 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 the pride, the selfishness, whatever it is out here that everybody can see, underneath it, at the heart of it, it's revealing, I don't know God in this area as he fully is, and that's why I keep running to this false substitute. So the person who's addicted to pornography, what it reveals is that you don't know God in a way that can satisfy your soul to the point where the substitutes won't suffice. So the person who's constantly lying and, and, and walking in pride and wanting people to be impressed with them, it reveals you don't yet know God to a degree to know him that he loves you as you are, that you don't have to impress him. And when you know you don't have to impress him, you're done trying to impress other people. Our sins ultimately reveal gaps of knowledge about God. And so in essence, what Jesus is communicating, and we need to capture this, God's heart breaks over our lives when we commit willful disobedience because it screams out to him, they don't know me in this area. They don't trust me yet. They don't believe I'm sufficient. They don't believe yet that I love them that fully. They're drinking water with toxic sludge and I'm offering them living water and they don't see the difference. Jesus is calling us to call sin, sin, to realize that it has damning impact, damning effects 
and that his heart cries out toward us and says, you don't know me in that area of your life. That's why you keep clinging to these things. Disobedience reveals where we don't know God, where we don't fully see him and believe him to be fully beautiful. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been trying to get this point across. He's told us on multiple occasions, essentially, that our righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. And that's a profound thing, because what Jesus is saying is that our obedience to him has to be more than just external behavior, like the Pharisees. See, in that day, you could, many people said, I was born a Jew. This is my family, and so therefore I am a Jew. And Jesus to them was saying, actually, until you conform to the will of God in your heart, you're claiming an identity that isn't truly accurate because you're only one outwardly. But that same charge, that same confrontation applies to us, that we can't claim to follow Jesus if it's only in words, if it doesn't show up in our daily life. But if you've been paying attention to everything that Jesus has been saying throughout the Sermon on the Mount, repeatedly we have been left in this cliffhanger moment of, I can't do this. This is impossible. You want me to do what? To love how? To care for who? I can't do this. And that's exactly where Jesus wants his words to bring us to. He wants us to be right at that place where we hear what he's telling us to do and we recognize I can't do this. And at that place, his grace meets us. And through him, we can now tame our wild and crazy hearts. You know, nothing in this world can transform the human heart. Only Jesus can. I've never seen any belief system, atheism, anything, transform somebody. Does it make them a better citizen? Absolutely. Does it make them a good person? Yes. But transform them deep within. I've never seen anything do that for someone like the grace of Jesus. And this whole time Jesus has been teaching us his will for our lives to bring us to the place where we say, I want to say this, I want to say yes to this, but my life wants to go this way. Jesus, meet me and change my heart. You know what it really means to confess Jesus as Lord and to live consistently with it? Is every day realizing that your heart and my heart will want to rage against God's will for us. You know, tomorrow, none of us will wake up and say, that's it, it's done. No resistance inside. I, I'm never going to fight God's will. Finally, finally, it clicked. That day will never come. You'll never wake up one day and say, oh my gosh, all the difficult people in my life, it's easy to love them. Bring them all to me. I got this. <laughs> Finally, yes. 
There's never going to be a day where lust and temptation and anger and selfishness won't knock on your door and you won't be tempted to open it up. If you're waiting for that day, it will not arrive. So then every day of your life and mine as a disciple is a day where we confess Jesus as Lord and we meet him in the space of our lives, our emotions, our, our will, our thoughts, seeking to rage against that confession. And it's at that place of honesty that the Spirit meets us and through him and him alone causes us to conform to the will of God. Essentially, every day starts out and ends with the question, will you bow your knee to Jesus? Or will you stand proudly in resistance to his will? And Jesus says to those that choose to resist his will, even though they confess and talk a good game, to those judgment awaits because of the disrespect toward God's grace that that choice communicates. But knowing that reality, what if you and I chose differently today and every day from here on out and resisted the surface life of saying something that we should believe in but don't live it out but actually dive into the depths of God's love where what we say, what we believe, and what we live out are one. And they're increasingly becoming one. And with each passing day, we're conforming more and more to his will. If you're struggling today, there's hope. The hope is that your life can conform to your confession of Jesus over time and you continue to allow him to love you but if you find yourself in a state where the inward rebellion, the inward resistance, the dichotomy, the, the lack of integrity is where you're at, hear Jesus' words to you today as he invites us to come to him and to refuse that lie, to be met by his grace so that we avoid judgment. As the worship team comes forward, could I invite us to stand As we stand, could I invite us just to posture our hearts in prayer? And perhaps to do some reflection at this time. If we're honest, we all have areas of struggle and we all have some areas of defiance of stubborn refusal to surrender. Let's bring all of that to God. How do you know you're stubbornly refusing to surrender to God in a certain area of your life? Well, quite simply, it keeps showing up. It's not a one-off, it's not circumstantial, it's a pattern, it's a habit, it's a trend. Are there trends of disobedience in your life? Bring that to God. And the prayer is, Lord, may our confession and our lives be one. 
May my thoughts reflect that you are Lord. May my emotions conform to you being Lord. May my inner desires conform to your Lordship. Jesus. Jesus. In your own words, right there, just begin to have a time of confession between you and God. Confess the areas where you're struggling. Confess the areas where you're stubbornly resistant. Jesus. Lord, this shows up in our life in so many ways. When we confess it, we bring it to you. We ask that you'd meet us now. prayer team is in the back to my right to your left at any given moment or in these next few moments you can slip out of your seat go and receive prayer for any of the words that were shared earlier or anything that you're carrying right now from the sermon or just life encourage you slip out of your seat over these next few moments receive prayer but let's all respond as we sing as we wrap our prayers with song right now and come before the throne of God.